Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is our magazine format show, our cooking podcast in which we go through several segments. It's a whole new world for us. And we have gotten some great feedback on this. We certainly appreciate that. So without any further ado, to use the full cliche, let's go to our first segment, which is all about... Shellfish in the news this week. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Shellfish in the news. Did they run for president or did they... uh, I think one already was president. Oh, oh, let's not go there. Or um, (laughs) did oysters, I don't know, make a big splash somewhere? I guess they did. Oysters are actually in the headlines, right? Well, because of the horrible heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, it's like over 100 degrees. I don't want to be there. Do you want to be there? (laughs) I don't want to be there. No. And guess what doesn't want to be there? Oysters don't want to be there either. And that's where they live. Yeah, they do. And I know a lot of our listeners are not from the U.S. So we're talking about the Pacific Northwest of the United States, not Canada. Although this may be a problem in Canada, we can only speak about the United States. But a great deal of oysters come from the Washington State area. And 115 degree temperatures are no good for oysters. That's why you don't really want to go eat oysters, I don't know, off the coast of Ecuador. Well, maybe you do. Maybe there are oysters. I don't know. (laughs) Oysters are a really hot place. You don't want to eat oysters off the coast of Morocco. Well, Washington State saw the highest number of cases of Vibrio, which is an oyster-borne bacteria illness during the month of July. Mm. They actually said that there was the combination of the ultra-high temperatures and Here's the trick. It was low tides during the hottest part of the day. So the oysters were baking in the sun. Mm, Oysters Rockefeller. Mm, And that set a record a record for this illness from oysters in July. Yeah, it's really tough and it's non-palatable. Uh, it's not, what do I mean? You can't taste it. So you don't actually know if you're ingesting this oyster-borne bacterial illness. Blew. Ugh, Blew. I know. But let's just say <laughs> that I have, an, I, I have this friend, <laughs> Catherine, who lives in Austin. If she's listening, she knows I'm going to talk about Hi, it. Hi, Catherine. And the thing with Catherine is she grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas. See, it is hot there. And they do eat oysters there. So I'm a little wrong about hot and oysters. But okay, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she grew up eating oysters from the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana, too. And here's what she does. And it's always kind of cracks me up. But it is true. If she puts it in her mouth and it doesn't taste right, she spits it back out. That's a good rule for everything, especially I dating. I <laughs> Gross. <laughs> um <laughs> So anyway, uh, really, this is a kid-friendly podcast. Uh, So uh, she spits it back out. And I think this is actually something that I've learned from her. The minute she tastes an oyster that tastes sulfurous or tastes garbagey or tastes like your your trash can with the liquid in the bottom of it when you throw (laughs) the trash can out and it smells and tastes like that, she spits it back out and doesn't take any chances. And it's not that it's necessarily at that point bad. What Catherine always says is, why take chances? Better safe than sorry. I think that's really important. But in this case, with the Vibrio outbreak, it's very important to watch where you know your producers are from, how fresh they are. Ask questions. If you are buying oysters at a supermarket or if you are back to eating in restaurants, as we sort of are, Bruce and I, we've eaten a few, but not very many. If you're back at eating in restaurants full time and in person, just 
talk to your server and ask about where those oysters are from. Well, needless to say, there's been a recall in Washington State of yep. these uh, contaminated oysters. And so, in our opinion, it's probably best to avoid oysters from that area until the Washington State Health Department gives it a green light again. That's probably right. But they also, oysters, boy, those little boogers make problems. They are causing problems in Japan too, right? Well, the Olympics are happening, aren't they? Yes. And there's... Well, kind of. Allegedly, <laughs> sort of, maybe, maybe without Norwegian volleyball yeah. teams and I don't know. Well, the rowers, the, you know, the whole rowing sport mm-hmm. in the summer, and they're out in Tokyo Bay. I'm familiar with it only by watching. <laughs> and Tokyo Bay, they set up these floats with ropes between them, both to suppress waves and create lanes for the rowing. But guess what's happening? Well, uh, the oysters have taken over the ropes. <laughs> They're attached to the ropes, and the ropes have started sinking. And they are. The ropes are sinking, and the lanes are disappearing. And so far as of this moment, there have been 14 tons of oysters removed from the Olympic ropes. It's kind of insane. Japan has waters that are abundant in seafood, as you can imagine. And there are abundant oyster beds around Japan. And they have absolutely <laughs> destroyed rowing as an Olympic sport, or at least they're trying to um, destroy it. But I'll tell you this, something else that kind of destroyed shellfish for a while, and that was the pandemic, right? Well, yeah, because people weren't going out to eat. Restaurants yeah. were the number one buyers of uh, seafood and shellfish from farms and from harvesters. Yep. And so because they weren't buying, oysters grew too big to even eat or sell, and some died, and they were overabundant, and they didn't know what to do with them, and they went to waste, and it was a real problem for the farmers. So what's happening? I would say that the bulk of of shellfish and oysters consumed, at least in the United States, is consumed in restaurants, as you said. Yes, it does. Just, I think that's that. I don't have a proof number for that, but I just think about even us anecdotally, and I think about how like we never eat oysters at home, no. but I love them and will eat them in restaurants. I don't want to shuck them. They're such a pain. Let someone in the restaurant <laughs> do it. That's why I'm paying them three bucks an oyster. That so they can is. Shuck they them. are a pain. And I would say that the amount of shrimp I eat, or even lobster, well, I don't know. We eat a lot of lobster at home because we live in New England, but the lobster I eat, it's still, it's bulk of restaurants. So this is part of the problem. So, all right, so the shellfish stocks and the oyster stocks and all this have collapsed a bit in terms of their buying, in terms of market. Yeah, the the, the oyster farmers especially were hit really bad. They yeah. couldn't sell their products. Now that people are going back to restaurants, all the oysters that have been sitting are actually, believe it or not, too big to eat. Yeah, they're too slimy big. But and so... The, someone came to their rescue. They did. The Nature Conservancy and the Putrid Trust combined up to buy millions of pounds of unsold oysters. And why? Because they're going to return them to the oceans around New York as living reefs. And the program is called SOAR, which stands for Supporting Oyster Aquaculture and Restoration. It's kind of fascinating. There was this move um, in the early 2000s to rebuild the oyster beds around New York. If you don't know, New York was rather famous for its oyster beds in the 19th century. Oysters were a rather inexpensive, low-class food if you can believe it. And New York had abundant oyster beds. Those oyster beds died out because of industrialization and increasing traffic. And then there was this attempt to replant oyster beds at the end of of Manhattan. Right, the bottom, the end of the bottom of the island. And then the World Trade Centers fell down. 
And they, there was, I'm sorry, this is gross, and I'm only laughing because it's so gross. There was the problem of human remains possibly in oysters and also contaminants from the World Trade Centers in those oyster well, beds. Yeah, and also they were buried for a while just yeah. in all that debris, and they didn't yeah. survive. So it's really great that the Pew Charitable Trust and the Nature Conservancy are doing this. They are going to spend over $2 million. They are going to create 276 acres of shellfish reefs, and that really helps clean the water around New York, forms a natural barrier for yeah. weather-related issues. Yeah. It's going to be off Governor's Island and other places around New York. I still haven't been to Governor's Island since it's been redeveloped, since it's now a public park. I know. I Wasn't really, it going to be a casino for a while? I think there was a question about the former guy perhaps using it as a casino. Right now, I think it's a public park. It's supposed to be gorgeous with art installations in the landscape it's supposed to i've been told it's a better central park so i'm kind of dying to go back to well, New York. we're gonna have to take a two-hour drive down and go check it out we are and go to governor's island so that's shellfish in the news well it was mostly oysters in the news mostly oysters in it the was news. shellfish in the news kind <laughs> of mollusks in the news how's that so that is how it happened this week segment two of cooking with bruce and mark our one minute cooking tip what is it mark it is, don't throw out the pickle brine after you finish a jar of pickles. Why? Because it makes the most amazing marinade for chicken breasts or pork chops. If you have that jar, right, it's half full mm -hmm. of brine now, mm -hmm. shove boneless, skinless chicken breasts in it, shove some center cut boneless pork chops in it. Into the jar. Right into the, the jar, cover it, let it sit in the refrigerator for two hours before you grill them or broil them. They will be amazing. And what else can you do with it? Well, you can also use it to splash into Bloody Marys mm. for a briny aftertaste. But let me just say, don't brine the chicken or the pork more than two hours in their fridge in that briner that gets too mushy because it's super acidic. Bruce and I eat a lot of pickled tomatoes. We use that brine all the time. Before we get to the next segment, I want to take a moment to ask you to subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget, subscribe and share. We'd love to get the word out and it really helps. And leave a comment and we'll have a conversation and go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Join that group, join in the conversation, join in the fun. So up next on the podcast, Cooking Bruce and Mark, Bruce's interview with Susie Bullock. She is the grill master behind the brand Hey Grill Hey. So today we're talking with Susie Bullock. She is a rarity in the world of grilling as that she is a woman grill master. And her website, Hey Grill Hey, where she encourages people to get out and grill. She breaks down stereotypes of grilling being both difficult and male-centric. Susie has been featured as a judge on Food Network shows, including Ultimate Summer Cook-Off and Barbecue Beatdown. And she has made a name for herself as the grilling queen, proving that women can succeed in male-dominated industries like grilling. Hey, Susie, welcome to Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Hey, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so I'm going to just jump right in and ask you, how did you get started in the grilling world? Uh, barbecue kind of found me, actually, which I... I think it does for a lot of people. Um, I grew up in a restaurant family. I grew up around food. Food was always a big part of our culture. And uh, my parents owned a hotel and a restaurant. So not only was it food, it was this whole idea of hospitality and bringing people together and taking care of people. And food was just a good element of that. So I grew up in this environment where also I'm the youngest of six kids. And I like my Older siblings were all out in the world, but Sunday dinners was when we came back and sat around the table. And so there were a lot of good uh, 
you know, memories for me tied to eating with the family, sitting around the table um, and feeding other people. And as I grew up and had my own family and kind of fell in love with feeding them and planning meals, and I ended up uh, getting offered a job with a local company that made grills and barbecues. And I had some experience in the blogging world prior to this. And they said, you know, we want to start a blog about this barbecue that we have so that when people buy it, all these recipes are online so that they can just access these recipes anytime. And I said, well, I love food and I have blogging experience, so let's do it. <laughs> it was kismet. I mean, it, it was. You, you fell in love with it and you had all the background for it. I agree with you that grilling and entertaining and feeding people, if you had that background of wanting to feed people and entertain, grill was the most amazing thing for you to fall into. Oh, yeah. Certainly. And honestly, nothing brings people to your table better than like a good spread of barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing brings your neighbors over like the smell of that wafting over the fence. Oh, yeah. That yep, is- absolutely. And that's kind of what we found when I first started this job. You know, they dropped a smoker off on my porch. And prior to that point, our grill that we had was just a free propane grill that I'd picked up off of Craigslist when somebody was done with it and moving. And so I didn't have a lot of true barbecue wood-fired cooking experience. And so this grill showed up on my porch and they said, we just want you to work on some recipes, like five a week, maybe starting on Monday. (laughs) So I instantly had to dive into not only do how, how do the mechanics of barbecue work? Cause that wasn't a culture I was incredibly familiar with, but what tastes good, what flavor profiles work and, and how do I make that something that's approachable for the everyday cook? So it was a, it was a really fun journey. And as that journey was unfolding and as I was learning this grill and, you know, how, how the barbecue world really operated, I started finding more and more people showing up at my house around dinner time, whether it was neighbors or parents of my kids, friend, you know, yeah. friends were showing up to pick up their kids. Like, Oh, I'll, I'll do pick up at the Bullocks today, honey. Don't worry about it. Um, stop off for a couple ribs on the way home. And it really did, uh, kind of build this community around us locally and online. It was a really cool experience. That sounds like magic. Hey, uh, so American society, has always embraced grilling as a masculine activity. So right from the beginning, were you finding yourself a little alienated from that community? Um, How, as a woman jumping into that, did that work for you? I don't know. It's kind of interesting because I feel like it's only been in the last several decades that grilling became this male dominated thing. And it was a really, really great marketing technique, (laughs) like (laughs) the post-war era. Men were hunters, providers, and there was really that nuclear family and the, you know, the male territory became outside at the grill. But prior to that, I mean, women were cooking over wood fires and home all the time, all day long. That was all we cooked over was wood fires Uh, because really electrical ovens and gas stoves are recent, really recent. I mean, we probably have living relatives that cooked without them. And so it's, it kind of became this, you know, iconic image of dad at the grill, but it really is only in recent decades. And so if I can just look back one or two generations, then it's really easy for me to find my place in barbecue and find my place with wood fired cooking, because that's how my ancestors cooked. That's how my family cooked. It kind of opened up that world to me that, you know, there's this, idea of a male dominated space now, but there are women who never stopped cooking over a fire. And uh, it just feels, I don't know, male or female, to me, it feels very, (laughs) like, primal, very authentic, very human to cook 
over a wood fire and to cook over a fire of any kind. And so I kind of just leaned on that more than what the current culture was saying and haven't run into a lot of issues. Luckily, there are odd comments here and there online, which is, I think, to be expected. But it's online. <laughs> yeah, it's online. But when it comes to people that I've really met and the community and the barbecue family that I've kind of built uh, as I've developed this business, everybody has been incredibly supportive. And I've never heard anything other than your food is awesome. Cause I think that's, what's really definitive in barbecue mm. is at the end of the day, how does your food taste? If your food is good, you're good. <laughs> like that's all that matters. <laughs> but I do hope that, um, that you are inspiring, um, other women and especially younger women to get into this and not, you know, cause a lot of us grew up, as you said, Dad was mom cooked inside all the time, but dad was outside. And that was great marketing for the grill companies in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So I hope that now you're inspiring uh, younger women to actually get out there and do it. This is not something that is just for men or shouldn't it shouldn't yeah. be just for men. No. And I think we're already seeing I mean, I can tell you I've already been seeing that for me personally. So I've been writing about barbecue for almost a decade. Uh, and when I first started out, it certainly ran very majority male based in terms of my audience. Uh, most of my audience was male. Uh, but it has really shifted in the last six years, I would say, since I started my own site. I went from about 90% male to about 45% male, 55% female. So I do feel like having a face of my website that is me, that's female. I'm a mom. I have three kids. Like This really is how we cook for our family. I think it does kind of shift the public perspective of what barbecue looks like because the only public perspective that we were served for so long was male driven um and so now to have the power of social media and you know i i can film a video of myself in my backyard and post it online and we're able to reach you know, tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people with this message that barbecues for everyone and barbecues for families and barbecues for friends. And uh, it's it's really, really cool. It's been super fun to be a part of. And have any of your kids turned out to be picky eaters or do they love everything you do? <laughs> Every kid is a picky eater, <laughs> at least for a little while. I think food is a way that a lot of people find independence. And I think that starts in childhood. And, you know, it's this way of saying, oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. Uh, so all my kids went through a picky phase. My oldest is 12 right now. My youngest is seven. Um, my 12-year-old will now eat pretty much everything. She kind of has crossed the the barrier of that, like, I'm going to choose what I want for dinner <laughs> phase. Yeah. And we'll eat everything. My middle child is a little bit pickier. My youngest child wants to like everything. He wants to be. He's the only one that's really taken a significant interest in food and cooking. Um, and he wants to be a chef. He's with me in the kitchen all day long and he's willing to try anything, but he still doesn't love everything, which is fine with me. I think, you know, as long as they're willing to try, as long as they're willing to have a bite, as long as they're willing to stay open to the possibility that maybe they don't like something yet, but they might in the future. Uh, that's good enough for me. <laughs> well, I, aside from one of them saying they want to be a vegetarian, I can't imagine anyone turning down a good smoked brisket. 
(laughs) I know I, my kids, I don't know. They might, we'll see. They might've just hit their peak exposure to meat and at a young age. And then they only want vegetables for the rest of their lives, which is fine too. I make really good vegetables. (laughs) Well, talk about, I'm going to go off script for a second. Let's talk about vegetables on the grill. Um, because everyone thinks brisket, pulled pork, ribs, burgers, hot dogs, Sure. There's a world of vegetables. I mean, what are some of your favorite things to do in the vegetable world on the grill? Oh, we really grill every vegetable because I think it makes everything taste better. That high heat cooking, the char on the outside, it almost brings out a sweetness in the vegetables that you wouldn't otherwise be able to taste. So we grill asparagus all the time, um, especially spring and early summer. That's one that's just always popping on the we love Brussels sprouts. We love artichokes. Uh, I usually I have a grill pan with holes in the bottom of it, and we'll chop up mushrooms and zucchini and squash and onions and toss them with you know a little balsamic marinade and put them on the grill for ten minutes with whatever else that's cooking, and they are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, baked potatoes on the grill are unreal. Wrapped or not wrapped? Wrapped and unwrapped. <laughs> so I have a full video on it, but uh, wrapped and indirect to start while they come up in temperature. Then you unwrap them. Oh, and I put olive oil and salt on them before I wrap them. Perfect. Then you take them out of the foil and move them over to the direct heat side of the grill. And you actually grill and char the outside of your potato skins. And so you get these fluffy, almost steamed insides and then all the crispy browned skin from the salt and the oil on the outside. They're the best baked potatoes ever. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Do you use a, a pan with holes for vegetables? Do, yeah. do people need to have a special pan? Is that a good idea to have a special pan for vegetables? I know that sometimes like if you take asparagus the wrong way, right through the yeah. slots. So, so you recommend using a pan? I think a grill pan is a good option to have if you're cooking outside regularly because it kind of gives you this vessel for a lot of other things that might be difficult to cook on the grill. Like you said, stuff does fall through the grates. So I think it makes the grill top more versatile for you and, you know, expands the range of what you're able to cook. I mean, we've done meatloaf in grill pans because it allows the fat to drip away. We've done um, vegetables, we've done shrimp, we've done scallops. Like there are so many things that you can utilize, uh, you know, a grill pan for, that I really just think it increases the usability of the grill. And I always say, if you can cook it inside, you can cook it outside. Um, that's especially true if you just have you know a couple of the right tools. I think a lot of people think, oh no, I don't wanna grill, it's so messy. But it's not really about the mess, isn't it all about just keeping your grill clean and keep it from becoming overwhelming? And if that is the case, can you make any suggestions for people to help make that easier and get them over this idea that it's messy? My mindset in the beginning was the opposite. <laughs> when I started <laughs> grilling, I was like, oh, this is way less dishes. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not hand scrubbing pans every time that I'm cooking something. For me, it was really a perspective shift. Like, oh, okay. I don't have to put this in a pan. I can put this directly on the grill grates. And then you're in charge of keeping your grill grates clean. But honestly, you're doing that already for your oven. You're already washing your pans. Like it's just to me, the grill is an extension of my indoor cooking space. It's 
equal. And so if I'm going to spend the time, you know, washing my pans or wiping off my stove after cooking, it's the same as the grill grates. And so I think there's this saying in cooking that you clean as you go. And I think that can be true of the grill also. So I like to have my stuff next to the grill so I can pull it off the grill grill brush. I usually wipe down the grill right after I'm done cooking while the grates are still hot. Okay. And then everything comes off nice and easy. I like to use tin foil, like balled up tin foil, and pinch that between tongs and rub that along the grill grates, and that gets tossed. Great idea. And then we're ready to go. And so I know I've seen people when they're done cooking just like crank the grill up if it's a gas grill or let let the grill burn off the stuff. Is that not a good idea? Do you need to do that? Or is just what you suggested scraping when you're done enough? I don't think you need to let it burn all the way off, to be honest with you, because if you're cranking your temps up to 700 plus degrees, you are going to char a lot of what's on the grates, but you still have to wipe it off. Otherwise, you're just going to have all this charred remains on your grill grates. And so for me, just wiping it right after I pull the food off the grill while the grates are still hot is generally enough to get all the debris off. And then the next time I'm preheating the grill, if there's anything left behind, it can cook down. But generally wiping it while it's still hot is kind of the way to go for getting it clean for the next go round. Can you share some tips for beginner grillers? I believe firmly that you can cook great barbecue no matter what grill you have. And there is a lot of marketing out there for a lot of really amazing grills that they want you to buy. You know, it's $1,000 or $1,500 or uh, $800 for these grills. And that can be a barrier of entry for a lot of people. But like I said, I started in the grilling world with a free grill that I got online. I truly do believe you can make great food with whatever type of unit you have access to in your own home. I think the most important thing is just to start. Uh, another tip would be get to know your grill, get to know where the hot spots are, get to know where the cool spots are. And one way that you can do that really affordably is make toast on your grill grates. So bust out a loaf of affordable white bread, turn on your grill grates to medium and place the toast across the surface of your grill. And you'll be able to see visually on the side of that toast, which ones toast faster, which ones turn dark quickly, which ones stay blonde. And that'll give you a really good idea of the heat zones on your grill. I love that idea. And you know, you just want to get to know your grill the same way you get to know your oven. You know what oven burners are your favorite if you're <laughs> cooking regularly. Everybody is, you know, front, right, back, left. You have your favorite burner. And the same is going to be true of your grill. You're going to have these favorite areas that you like to cook on, whether it's the two left, you know, get really hot right in the center. Uh, and that's where you put your things that you want to cook hot and fast or over to the right. You can turn it down low and get some really nice slow rise in temperatures for thicker things like steak or pork chops. Spend some time with your grill. Get to know it a little bit the same way that you would with your oven or with your stove. Um, the second thing I would recommend is a meat thermometer. And those again range in price, but try and get an instant read thermometer. I don't think you need to start out with eight probes and all the bells and whistles. A good instant read thermometer will be able to instantly tell you what the internal temperature of your meat is. And a lot of people get nervous when they're cooking meat specifically because it does have specific doneness. You know, you don't want to undercook a chicken and you don't want to overcook a steak. So having a good meat thermometer will really boost your confidence <laughs> because you're not guessing and you're not cutting your meat open while it's still on the grill. Um, and you know, you have a good idea of what's happening inside your meat by a quick probe, which is super nice. Oh man, Susie, you have made me hungry for barbecue, really hungry for barbecue. <laughs> um, I'm always hungry for barbecue. <laughs> it's I'm one of the occupational hazards. I want to remind everybody about your website, HeyGrillHey.com, where you have 
a ton of recipes and videos and we can watch you cook get great ideas from you that's hey grow hey and tell me about social media um where can people find you yeah, we're on Instagram at Hey Grill Hey. We post all of our long videos on YouTube every week, also at Hey Grill Hey. And we have an app with all of our recipes uploaded on the app. If just search in the app store for Hey Grill Hey, it'll pull right up for you. Sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks, Bruce. That was a great interview. Fascinating stuff. I love grilling. Well, actually, I love when Bruce and Susie grill, but uh, I love grilling. So finally, this is our last segment, segment four of this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. What is it? What's making us happy this week? And you get to go first. Okay. What's making me happy in food this week are cleaned coffee grinder gears. <laughs> Mark is saying that because we have a really nice espresso machine and it wasn't making really nice espresso and no. we realized it was our grinder. We have a nice burr grinder. It's not top of the end, but it's a decent burr yeah, grinder. Yeah, but it's not made for espresso. So I've jerry-rigged it and made it to espresso, but because of that, it gets clogged up. It does. And what was happening is <laughs> I drink espresso every morning and it was becoming more and more like water because the grounds were not fine enough. So Bruce took the whole thing apart and cleaned the grinding mechanism and now it makes beautiful espresso again. So here's my thing to you. If you have a decent burr grinder, go online and look up the manufacturer's recommendations on how to clean the grinding mechanism. You will have better coffee like I now do in your week. What's making me happy is something that seems to be making all of our friends happy. Also, every time I serve it, onion rings. <laughs> See, Mark's laughing. Even the sound, even those words, <laughs> onion rings, they make everybody happy. I know. We, I've decided that onion rings are more celebratory than French fries. Oh, much. They're more celebratory than caviar. It's, oh, they're, um, don't get crazy. <laughs> and I like frozen onion rings. I particularly like Alexis frozen onion rings. They're not paying me or saying, giving me anything for saying that. And so say how you do it, what you do. I drop them in the air fryer for about 13 minutes at 400 degrees, and that's it. And they come out. Crispy. You shake it around. Um, I don't. Yeah, I'll, I'll shake them halfway through, especially if it's um, if I have more than one bag in there. Then I definitely shake it. And if it's just one bag, then it depends on the size of your air fryer. If they're if it's really a thick layer of onion rings, shake it around. If it's like a single layer, you don't have to shake it. Yeah. And I put them in frozen, and they are just making me happy they are we had people over for dinner midweek this week and uh, bruce made burgers on the grill and then he just came out with this giant platter of two air fryers worth of onion rings and it <laughs> seemed like everybody was so excited about the onion rings it was this every thing. time every time <laughs> and in an air fryer they are so easy so that's the podcast <laughs> cooking with bruce and mark this is our magazine format let us know what you think check us out on facebook under the facebook group cooking with bruce and mark or drop right down to the bottom of that apple page and you can see write a review and rate this podcast please i thank you personally for doing that see you next week on cooking with bruce and mark